All right, good morning, guys. Happy Easter. He is risen. There you go. Well done. Well done. Guys, grab your Bibles. We're going over to John chapter 20 this morning. John chapter 20, so grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, not a problem. Problem, go ahead and grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going to be going over to page 906, page 906, John chapter 20. While you're flipping over there, again, let me, let me say welcome. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and uh, it is my great privilege to welcome you to um, our Easter celebration, um, our first one in this building, and uh, hopefully uh, the first of, of many more. We've been looking at the Holy Week this week through the eyes of Peter, one of one of Jesus' disciples, right? Peter had a unique view of, of Jesus. He had spent three years eating with him, sleeping with him, following him, listening to him. And, and, and he experienced this week from a unique perspective, right? He was there last Sunday on Palm Sunday when, when Jesus walked into Jerusalem uh, to, to the cheers of the crowd, right? He, he was the one there in the background marching in the train of Jesus, um, filled with such high plans for Jesus and, and filled with hope. We looked at the betrayal of Jesus through the eyes of Peter, what it was, looked like, what it was like in, in the darkness and the confusion of that garden when Judas and the temple guards came to arrest Jesus. And then we experienced the heartbreak of Peter's own betrayal of Jesus as he got a sudden and disturbing revelation of his own heart as he watched himself betray his Savior. Today we're going to share Peter's surprise at the resurrection. We're going to look at his doubt, and we're going to look at his hope. Because I think um, it was the last thing he expected would happen. He wanted it, but he didn't think it could happen. Because people don't just come back from the dead. It's simply too good to be true. And I think some of you this morning uh, might be in the same place, if we're just honest. Some of you this morning are in that place, man. This message is just too good to be true. And I get it, and I want you to know I get it. it it's a crazy message. It's a crazy thing. We say we believe that this man came back from the dead. But I want you to stick with me this morning because I think there's actually persuasive evidence that that is exactly what happened, and I think you should believe it's true. Beyond that, I, I would say this, that, that even if you don't believe it's true, even if you're not there yet, you should want it to be true. And that may sound like an arrogant assertion for somebody who doesn't hold my convictions, but I hope to explain over the course of this message why I don't believe I'm being arrogant in saying that. Because the resurrection promises that our deepest desires can be fulfilled and our greatest hopes aren't big enough. So let's take a look at our, our passage and then we're going to dig in. We're looking at John chapter 20. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10, starting at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one whom Jesus loved. I'm going to pause there for a minute. <laughs> That's John, okay? This is the Gospel of John. He's the one that wrote this. 
John doesn't mention himself by name in his gospel. He always speaks of himself in the third person, and specifically, he describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, that's not an arrogant way of saying Jesus loved him more than anybody else. That just means that the love of Christ had so shaped his identity and his experience that when he thought of himself, that's how, that was his identity. That's how he thought of himself. I am the one whom Jesus loved. Not that he didn't love the other disciples just as much, but, but when he thought of himself, that's what marked him and defined him. So remember that this is John. So let's begin right there again. Went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going down toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead." Then the disciples went back to their home. The word of the Lord. You guys, I, I love this passage. In fact, I love the Gospel of John. Um, John is, is, I just love his personality. It comes out in all of his writing, and, and there's so much character in this, in this passage, right? It begins with, with Mary Magdalene, um, and, and we're introduced to her earlier in the Gospels. She was part of the broader circle of Jesus' disciples, not one of the twelve, but in that broader circle of people who followed him and, and listened to him and ministered to him. We find out in Luke chapter 8 uh, that, that she actually became his disciple when Jesus delivered her from seven demons. Now, we don't know fully what that means. That account isn't described to us. It's just told that it, that it happened, but we do know that it means this, that she was a tortured and suffering woman. She had lived as an outcast in a male-dominated religious society. She had been undervalued and unprotected before she met Jesus. And after, she became a devoted follower. She had devoted all of her energy, all of her affection to following Jesus. And, And she comes to the tomb early, it says, before the sun rises which tells me that she probably was having trouble sleeping. The sufferings of Jesus dying on Good Friday were still gripping her heart. She couldn't rest, she couldn't sleep, and the only place she could think she would find comfort would at least be near the body of Jesus. And so she comes to the tomb early in the morning before sunrise and finds the stone rolled away. Now, I want you to notice that that she doesn't immediately jump up and and start proclaiming, hey, everybody, Jesus was raised from the dead. Instead, she runs to Peter and the other disciple, uh, the one whom Jesus loved, that would be John, and tells them that someone stole the body. It's the most obvious and reasonable explanation. She came to the tomb, the the stone was rolled away, and and she's convinced somebody has, has raided the tomb. So so Peter and John bolt out of the house, and and they run to the tomb. And I absolutely love the little details of this story. Take a look at verses 3 and 4, right? 
So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. (laughs) So we were running, you know, and I was faster. I just think it's important you know that. I, I beat him there, right? I mean, seriously, I can't think of any other reason that John includes that than like this little ding. Like, hey, Peter, you remember that time? We ran to the tomb. I got there first, right? And, and what I love about this is that you really pick up, man, these guys had spent years together. They had been on the road together. They had experienced stress together. They, they had experienced the exaltation together. James and, and Peter and John were the three on the top of the mountain during the transfiguration. I mean, these guys had shared intense experiences together, shame and defeat, laughter and, and victory. And it had built up, I believe, this, this brotherly affection and probably fed a brotherly competition. Um, these guys, if we read through Peter and James, these are not passive guys, right? And so I'm guessing there was competition running through their veins all the time, a brotherly competition and a, and a brotherly affection, right? Then you get to verses 5 and 6, and he goes on and says, and, and stooping to look in, of course he's speaking of himself because he's the first one there, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in, all right? So notice he, he exercises a little bit of reserve, right? He gets there, and there's this sense of like, wait a minute, this is a holy place, this is a solemn place, this is, so he pauses, he runs, and he gets there, and he's like, he's like looking in, then verse 8, then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. So he just bolts right in, and he saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, uh, also went in, and he saw and he believed. I mean, I love this because it's like I got there, I stopped, I was feeling the weight of it, I was peeking in, and Peter just blew right past me. So, so Peter has been humbled, right? Remember Good Friday? The betrayal, the brokenness that came out of Peter's heart. But he's still Peter. <laughs> you know, he's still going to blow through. He's, he's not, his, his sense of reserve just isn't there. His impulsivity is high, man. When he got there, he wasn't thinking, how do I peek through the... He's like, I'm going in and checking this thing out. And once he blows through, then John's like, well, I guess I should go in as well. And they go in, and, and they see the, the grave clothes lying there empty, and the face cloth folded up by itself. I mean, what, a, what an interesting and, um, I don't know, fascinating detail. Why, why would John include this? Like, hey, the face cloth, man, it was, the one that was on it, it was folded up, right? And then it started dawning on me as I was wrestling with this, thinking about this, you know, that, that, that something really important happened here, right? Um, the face cloth got folded up. <laughs> There's really no deep meaning here. I think it's a striking memory, right? I mean, people can try to find deep meanings. Oh, there's a metaphorical meaning or there's a... I think the face cloth was just folded up. He walked in and there was empty grave clothes and this scene is burned in his memory, Right? And what he realizes as he looks at this is this doesn't look like grave robbery. Right? The the Jews wouldn't have come in and touched a dead body. That would have been defiling. The Romans, if they had wanted to steal the body, why would they have unwrapped him? That doesn't make any sense. The guy had already been embalmed for burial and and put in the tomb. And man, if somebody was going to steal the body, they'd steal the whole thing. 
And John says it's at this point that he starts to believe. Believe what? Believe that it might actually be possible. That Jesus might actually have been raised from the dead. I think it's important for us to see that this was not an easy idea for the the disciples to embrace. This was not their first explanation. Right? Mary, Mary wasn't there yet. Right? We, we find out a little bit later in the text that she starts wandering around the garden looking for, for somebody and asking, you know, what have you done with the body? Thomas, we find out again later in this chapter, one of the disciples, Jesus appears to all the disciples, but Thomas isn't present. Thomas is out doing something. And, and when all the disciples come and tell Thomas about it, Thomas is like, man, I don't know what you guys are smoking, but I don't think so. I don't, that didn't happen. And in fact, I won't believe until I can put my my finger in in the holes in his hand and my hand in the hole in his side. This was not easy for them to believe. These are not ancient ignorance who were easily fooled into believing unbelievable things, which is often, I think, how modern people think about them. Well, they were just, you know, they weren't, they weren't enlightened like we are. They weren't smart like we are. They didn't have all the technological advances we have. They didn't understand science. Of course they believed this kind of thing. You guys, listen, they lived in a time and in a culture that didn't believe in the resurrection any more than ours does. Right? The Romans, the political leaders of the time, believed that the soul died with the body. The idea of a resurrection was laughable to them. To the Greek platonic mind, the goal of the soul was to become free of the body. They believed in life after death, but, but the goal was to actually be freed from the physical realm because it was in the physical realm that we experienced suffering. The idea of resurrection to them was not just laughable, it was offensive. To the Sadducees, who were the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish leaders, the, the dominant party of the Jewish, they didn't believe in the afterlife. There was no resurrection. In fact, they confront Jesus during his own ministry and laugh at him because he talked about the resurrection. The Pharisees, who were the minority party in the Jewish ruling class, they did believe in resurrection, but for them it was was only a single resurrection at the end of time. Any other resurrection didn't make sense. This idea of a a one-off resurrection that was incredibly important. No, there's, there's a resurrection at the end of time. This was not an idea that was easily accepted. This was not an idea that was easily embraced. It was not an idea that was easily believed. They had doubt. And many of us do too. So again, let's pause and consider how crazy this is. We believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now maybe you were invited here this morning by a friend or a family member. And man, I thank you for showing up. It's a great privilege for us to be able to share our celebration with you, and, and if you're having a hard time believing this stuff, I get it. I get it. You aren't alone in your skepticism, and, and honestly, I, your skepticism is justified. I get it. This stuff is, I mean, holy cow, who rises from the dead, right? But I want to challenge you a little this morning not to simply write off the resurrection with intellectual or cultural arrogance. I get your doubt, but don't let your doubt become your prison. We're really good at doubting in our culture. We're not very good at doubting our doubts. 
We're really, really good at becoming skeptical of things, and then we don't question our own skepticism. We don't doubt our own doubts. And as a result, we write things off. We don't consider things. We don't think about things carefully because we've already decided they simply cannot be true. And I'm going to ask you this morning to doubt your doubts, to question your assumptions, to be open, because I believe it is actually quite reasonable to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But why should you believe this account? How do we know that they didn't all just make this stuff up? An elaborate hoax, a lie. How do we know they even existed? All right, these are questions that are way bigger than obviously I can answer this morning. But there are some things that I find very compelling. These are things that were compelling to me as I learned about them, and I believe they continue to be compelling for people asking these questions. I believe there's enough evidence here that should lead you to ask careful and difficult questions. First of all, these accounts were written by eyewitnesses. They were written by eyewitnesses. There's really no greater form of evidence than an eyewitness. If you're in a court of law and you have an eyewitness, especially if you have multiple eyewitnesses who come together and have seen the same thing, that is a tremendously influential form of evidence. Peter was there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were there. They saw it. They were eyewitnesses, and they talked with countless other eyewitnesses. In fact, this was the actual primary apologetic of the early church. In other words, as they were sharing the message of Jesus, this is their (laughs) go-to, right? The very thing that was going to be so hard for people to believe became their primary proof that it actually happened. Jesus rose from the dead. If you don't believe me, Go talk to the eyewitnesses. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians that he had identified more than 500 eyewitnesses in Jerusalem alone. And he said, basically, if you doubt, go talk to them. It'd be like an event occurred, and and, and we're having a hard time believing it because we weren't there. And I'm like, look, man, I've, I've talked to the eyewitnesses. I'm one of them, and I've talked to them. There's 500 of them. Here are their names and addresses. They're right across the river in St. Louis. Why don't you go talk to them because they're eager to talk to you. That's heavy evidence. And if you go from person to person to person and, and you hear maybe slightly different variations, maybe, maybe different stories, but in it you pick up themes of similarity and you start realizing these people are telling the same story from different perspectives. That's significant. And because of that, you guys, the church exploded in the very place at the very time that the event occurred. Not hundreds of years later, not hundreds of miles away, in the actual place at the actual time. But Steve, couldn't the disciples just made this up? I mean, people are kind of gullible, right? Sure. And that is a theory. That's a theory, but... But that theory doesn't answer very many questions, and it actually opens up a whole can of worms. I mean, for example, explain the text we just read. It reads like history. It really does. I mean, it reads, when you read through this, man, it, it reads like history. It's very detailed. It's very specific. It reads like, man, this is what I did, and this is what I saw. Even down to some, some weird details... That, that don't necessarily even propel the, the, the narrative forward.
forward, right? Why does it read like history? You're like, Steve, that's what I would do if I was lying. If I wanted to make it up, I would write a really compelling piece of fiction. And I would include all these details so that when people read it, it would sound true even though it wasn't. Again, man, great answer, but (laughs) there's real problems with that. You guys, modern fiction depends on a technique called the suspension of disbelief. It's an agreement between the writer and the reader. So I basically say to the writer, if you make a detailed and and persuasive enough world for me, I'm going to suspend my disbelief and believe it's true. I'm going to enter into your piece of fiction, and I am going to be persuaded that it is an actual place, right? So when you write about this, this school of wizardry and witchcraft with magical moving staircases and, and all of these delightful characters, I'm just going to enter in and, man, I'm just going to believe it's true. You guys, that is a modern form of storytelling. That is something that was developed over years and years and has only been around Man, for the last, what, five, six hundred years, this is not an ancient form of of storytelling. It didn't exist in the first century. You cannot find examples of modern novels or modern storytelling in the first century. They don't exist. If they were going to make something up, they would have used the genre of their time, which was myth. And we do find examples of myth in the first century. Mythic writing is very distinctive. It was a form of storytelling that that made the heroes grandiose, and, and, and it generally dealt with large, sweeping movements. And even history was told in mythic language often so that conquering heroes could become almost godlike in their glory. But what it lacked was detailed descriptions like this. Because the writer of myth wasn't interested in the agreement of of trying to help you pretend you were actually there. The mythic writer didn't write like this. They didn't use this kind of graphic detail. This genre of writing didn't exist. So if you're going to say they were writing fiction, if you're going to say this is how they decided to try to fool people, you're going to have to explain how they came up with a genre of writing thousands of years before it was invented. And then kept it a secret and didn't tell anybody that they discovered this wonderful way, new way of, of writing and communicating. You guys, the details, like who got there first? The details of, of the face cloth being folded up. Those things make no sense in mythic writing. It only makes sense if John is actually writing what he remembers. If John is actually saying, man, I have this vivid memory of this incredible event. Let me tell you what I remember. It also includes things that no mythic writer, no liar would have ever included, like Mary discovering the tomb first. We're like, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, during that period of time, if you're trying to convince a male-dominated, highly religious society that your story is true, you're not going to make the first witness a woman. During that period of time, women had no legal standing in that culture. They could not be witnesses in a court of law. They had no social clout, especially a woman like Mary. A woman who had a history of ill repute. A woman who would have been seen as as at best on the outskirts and margins of society. 
if, if you were trying to convince people with a lie, you wouldn't put details in this that would actually make it harder for the people you're trying to convince to believe what you're trying to say. The only explanation for details like this and detailed accounts of Peter's own betrayal of Jesus. The only reason those stories are in there, the only explanation that makes sense, is because they're true. If you were lying, you wouldn't make yourself less reputable. You wouldn't make yourself look worse. You wouldn't couch the story with details that make it more offensive and harder to receive. You guys, if this is all made up, you've got to explain that stuff. Right? You can't just say, well, it was made up and walk away with any kind of intellectual integrity. See, there's evidence here that has to be explained. So how do we know that any of it even happened? I'm going to move through this part quickly, but I find this compelling. Scholar Gary Habermas did a study of contemporary scholarship. We're talking about modern scholarship. He compiled a list of more than 2,200 sources, French, German, English. These are historical experts who wrote about the historical Jesus. There were believers and unbelievers, right? We're talking about secular historians and Christian historians, and it's almost universally accepted that, that these things are actual history that actually occurred. First of all, that Jesus lived. There's really no question among the, the historical scholars. You might find people questioning on YouTube, right? In their four-minute clip in which they debunk everything that possibly could be true about the Bible. Genuine scholars agree Jesus lived. They agree that he was killed by crucifixion. This was the common form of, of, of Roman execution in this period of time. There is agreement that he was actually buried. Right? That not just that he, they, they took him off the cross where he was dead and, and somehow resuscitated him, even though his wounds were in themselves fatal. No, he, he was actually wrapped in burial cloths, embalmed the way they embalmed the bodies, and put into a tomb he was buried. And that that tomb was found empty. Beyond that, that his disciples scattered in confusion and despair. That those accounts are too radically embarrassing not to be true. <laughs> right? That, that they really did, in the face of threat, disappear, run. There is general and universal acceptance that the resurrection became the first and central message of the church. Not necessarily that it's true. But it is agreed upon that it was the central message of the early church. They didn't show up teaching some other message and then discover the idea of the resurrection somewhere down the line. The first and compelling message of the early church was that Jesus was raised from the dead. They agree that the church exploded in growth in the very place at the very time that the events took place. The early church exploded by new believers. We're talking thousands and then tens of thousands of believers in the first weeks and months after the resurrection. And it continued to thrive and grow over the next several years until local persecution increased and drove those believers out into the surrounding regions. It grew in the very place at the very time the events took place. 
They agree that the disciples were transformed from cowards into leaders almost overnight. That they went from these these self-protective, scared men to mission-driven, courageous leaders in the matter of weeks. In a matter of weeks. There's general agreement that these guys not only were transformed into courageous leaders in a matter of weeks, they then stayed courageous leaders for the next 40 years. This wasn't just something that they temporarily put on. It wasn't a message that they temporarily adopted. These guys spent the rest of their lives sharing a message and moving on mission to the point of death. Four of them were crucified. Two were crucified upside down. One after being skinned alive. Two were speared, one was stabbed, and one was exiled. And they never wavered on the message. Chuck Colson um, knew something about conspiracies. Chuck Colson was known as President Nixon's hatchet man. He was one of the Watergate Seven, if you guys are familiar with the Watergate scandal, when President Nixon was attempting to bug the headquarters, blah, blah, blah. He was part of this team that was trying to keep this scandal a secret. He was one of the leaders in it, and he was there when it dissolved. He ended up pleading uh, guilty to obstruction of justice and serving seven months in federal penitentiary, and he became a believer. Um later in his life. And he said this. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they saw Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put, to, put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. They kept the message, and they died for it. And then finally, there's general agreement that skeptics became believers, most notably James and Paul. James, the brother of Jesus, James was raised with Jesus, did not become a follower. James watched him move through his public ministry, did not become a follower. James was skeptical of his brother's claims until the resurrection. And then there was such a radical transformation in James that he became the leader of the Jerusalem church. Paul, who was Saul, was a leading Pharisee of the Pharisees, a persecutor of the church, somebody who was, who was attacking anyone who believed the gospel. He was a rising star in Phariseeism. He was well-known. He was on his way to, to political influence and social clout and respect, all the things that drive a guy like that. And in an instant, he walked away from it. In an instant, he dropped it all. In his own words, he counts all of his previous accomplishments like a pile of dung. How do you explain Men who will die for a message. How do you explain people who are skeptical openly and antagonistically, suddenly, transformatively becoming followers? 
You guys, listen, if you're not going to believe in the resurrection, you have to find a way to explain history. My point is this. You're not off the hook just because you want to say, I don't think it happened. There are compelling things you have to wrestle with, compelling things you have to explain. All of this, the explosion of the faith, the skeptics becoming believers, the apostles' sudden transformation, their their fidelity to the message of the gospel to the point of suffering and dying. You guys, something happened. It was like a bomb went off. And we can see the effects. Now you can say a bomb didn't go off, but you still have to explain the effects. The one thing that explains all of these things is that Jesus rose from the dead. If we take that, everything else makes sense. As impossible as it may seem to believe, it explains everything we see that occurred after. If you think it was a conspiracy or a lie, that's your choice. But I think that's as much a leap of faith as anything. So, I think it's important for us to admit believing the resurrection isn't easy, and there is no way, and I hope you don't feel in any way that I'm belittling your doubt or your skepticism. I am simply trying to challenge you to consider something that generally in our culture if you're not raised in it, if you're, it's hard to believe, and I get it. I'm just saying there's a good reason to believe it. People don't just come back from the dead. But just because it's hard to believe doesn't mean it didn't happen. Now, here's the thing, you guys. Even if you're not sure, even if you don't believe, I think you should want it to be true. Because the resurrection ignites our hopes and lights up our desires like nothing else can. Yes, we, we want a new world. The resurrection is our promise that all wrong will be set right. I mean, think about what the resurrection meant to Peter, right? For him, it was intensely personal, right? We spent Good Friday sitting in his betrayal of Jesus and his sudden revelation that he was standing not with Jesus, but with Judas, that he was one of the betrayers of his Lord, he realized in his betrayal when he locked eyes with him that that shame was his final conversation with the one that he loved. The resurrection means that that shame doesn't have the final word. When it starts dawning on Peter that Jesus may have actually been raised from the dead... That resurrection is intensely personal. And that's how it always begins. The gospel is an intensely personal message. It teaches that Jesus entered the darkness of death, but he didn't do it as a victim. He didn't do it because he was handed over. He did it because he was on mission. Right? He lived the life we should have lived so that he could then die the death we deserve to die as our hero, as our substitute, as a delivering and self-sacrificing king. He died for us personally. He died from my guilt. He died for my shame. 
And Peter in that moment felt the, the great personal weight and joy of thinking, man, if he came back from the dead, if he came back from the dead, it means my guilt has not had its final word and my shame will not define me. He died for us personally and he rose again for us personally. The end of chapter Romans chapter 4 makes the theological implications of this clear. I'm going to put that verse on the screen. It says this, righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So really what Paul is saying here is this. He's saying, you will be made right with God. You'll be made righteous. It'll be counted to you. That righteousness will be a gift to you when you believe in Jesus. When you trust in this finished work. Because not only did he die for you, but he was raised for you. See, he died for your transgressions. It was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. It was our great offense against God that, that required so great a sacrifice. And he was raised for your justification. For you to be declared right in his victory over your sin. He rose again. He entered my death, paid my price. And when he rose again, it was the great declaration that I was free. That I could be justified and made righteous with a righteousness not my own. His victory over sin is my victory over death. Death has been defeated. My shame, my guilt, my failure does not have the final word. And it will not define me. It will not imprison me. It will not enslave me. Because when I stand now as a believer in Christ, I stand not in my transgression, but in His resurrection. You guys, if, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, He could not be our substitute in judgment. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead... Our faith is misplaced. He couldn't be our hero. So the resurrection is intensely personal. Peter would have known it and, and longed for it. But he also longed for it to be cosmically universal. So the way this works is we believe the gospel. The gospel transforms us. We are made new creatures together in Christ who I was, was crucified with Christ. I am now a new creation in Christ. I stand in His resurrection, made new by His resurrection. I have a, a, a new righteousness and a new future. But that's like a seed planted in the creation. That righteousness, that change, is, is not just about me. It's about all things. Peter's hope wasn't just for personal cleansing. It was for the world to be changed. His hope in following Jesus was that Jesus would bring in a new kingdom. Not just forgive him personally, but create a new community of humanity, that there would be a new kingdom 
a kingdom of righteousness where justice is served and power isn't abused for selfish gain, where greed doesn't continually win out over love, where people are valued as image bearers of God, and gentle weakness is not despised and exploited. Peter longed for an end to the abuses of the Roman Empire, where might makes right And I think Peter also longed for the end of the abuses of the religious empire, where religious self-righteousness pretended to be genuine freedom. I think Peter also longed for the end of the abuses of, of the humanistic empire, where basic exploitative desires were explained away as just human nature. And people with privilege and power were able to say things like, well, whatever floats your boat, while people around them were drowning under the weight of their privilege. Listen, when Jesus rose from the dead, it was so you could be forgiven. But it wasn't just so you could be forgiven. It was so that all creation could be set right. So that the great betrayal at the heart of the human condition could be set right. We make a mistake if we think that the, the gospel is just about personal salvation and because and, 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 it's so much bigger and the promise is so much better. In the finer, final chapters of the Bible, we don't find a bunch of Christians floating up to heaven in, in some sort of angelic fashion. We find the kingdom of heaven descending onto earth, the new Jerusalem coming down to the world, God's kingdom established in the earthly sphere. You guys, your deepest desires for fullness of life, for love, for justice and equity, for the flourishing of creativity and productivity and community, the resurrection promises that those desires will feast on a fulfillment. Because the resurrection is the inauguration of a new kingdom. The resurrection is the promise that your hopes for a better world aren't naive and aren't dumb. That your desires for justice and peace, for love and the flourishing of human life are rooted in reality. The resurrection promises a future in which life will once again be the way it was supposed to be. The resurrection promises that your work now to be a blessing, to share love, to bring justice, love, mercy, walk humbly with your God and in love with one another isn't wasted. They are seeds sown that will grow into a rich harvest of righteousness. But at this point in our story, Peter's just starting to process this. It's just starting to dawn on him. He's starting to wake up to this new reality and this new hope. And he's going to need some help processing it to internalize what the resurrection means to him and to the rest of his life and ultimately to the world and how transformative this beautiful message of grace actually is. So Jesus is going to have to help him out. We're going to look at that next week. Jesus is going to grab Peter and pull him into a private conversation. And uh, it is both... Awkward and interesting. And uh, so I invite you back next week as we continue to explore what the resurrection means, not just for Peter, 
but for us. Let me close us now in a word of prayer. I'm going to put some reflection questions up on the screen. We're going to share communion in a moment, but we'll introduce that then. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you, Lord, that Easter's about a lot more than family and having fun, pastel colors and bunnies. Lord, we may have fun with all that stuff, but man, the promise of Easter is a new creation. The promise of Easter is the setting of all things right. The promise of Easter is life as we long for it to be. Lord, I thank you that you stepped into our shame, that we might be covered in your glory. I thank you that you bore the weight of my guilt, that I might be given the gift of your righteousness. Father, I pray that you'll undo my heart in gratitude, that I will genuinely be amazed at that grace. And I pray for us as a people, Lord, that we might be a people walking in the hope of the resurrection. That Easter won't be something that we simply celebrate one day a year as a memorial service. But we will walk in its reality and its power daily. Because you are risen. You are risen indeed. Guys, take a few minutes and pray. We're going to share communion in a moment.